We have seen wonder goals, rearguard action, upsets, and we've had our Pandev moment already. And we've still got plenty more games to come. Welcome to EFC Presents Europod. This is episode two. I'm Mike Oxborough, the full-time accountant and part-time goalkeeper yet to master either trade, which bodes well for my podcast hosting debut. Uh, Cranford's answer to Pep Guardiola. Uh, Dan Hattan7 is hopefully joining us later on, but definitely joining me today, a man whose takes are so hot, they make Stephen A. Smith sound sensible. I expect more to come somehow from the Sweden superfan, Chad Rawcliffe. Hello. And a man so Philly, he makes gritty shotgunning beers on a cheesesteak sand outside an Eagles game, somehow culturally neutral, on his EFC podcast debut, Mike McDonough. Hey, what's up? Good morning. Well, good afternoon. No, it is good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, some big news for you coming out of EFC Europod Corner. Now, in episode one, you heard us joke around about the millions of listeners we have in North Macedonia. Obviously, semi-tongue-in-cheek. It's down to the few hundred thousands, I'm afraid. But some exciting actual developments. Uh, EFC Presents is officially the 130th most listened to sports-related podcast in the great nation of Zambia. So from myself and the rest of the EFC Presents team, shout out to everyone tuning in in Lusaka and further, further afield. We are now Zambia fans for life. What news that is, by the way. What an outreach. Now, before we get into the action and digest what has been a fascinating start to the tournament in our usual light-hearted way, I uh, just want to take a little moment to wish all the very best to Christian Eriksen in his recovery. Um, an absolutely horrendous incident which shook the world. And without the absolute heroics of the medics, the quick thinking of Simon Kier, Kasper Schmeichel, Anthony Taylor, the referee, and, uh, and others, an already horrible story could have been so much worse. Um, so, yeah, I just want to take a little moment to, to mention that before we get stuck in. Uh, Mike, Chad, should the game have been restarted that day? I don't think so at all. I think that was um, – that was- it was unfair all the way around. The players were coming back on with tears in their eyes. I just don't know how you're supposed to perform under that under those circumstances. Yeah, I um, yeah, I think exactly the same. It seems a really obvious one not to. And I know at the time, like they've said, you know, Christian Eriksen wanted the game to be played. You know, it's it's well, okay, I get that. That's a nice sentiment, but at the same time, like the players aren't in the right state of mind. It's it's not right, like you say, it's not fair. You know, it's nothing against, against Finland, there's nothing against them, like national team. It's just a strange one. Like, UEFA have got to get the game played at some point, but starting it straight away, like, I had assumed that a game wasn't happening that day. I would presume most right. people had. So it just seems a really, really odd one. Like, even if you just wait 24 hours and play it, you know, it's better. That's yeah. all it is. And if the Danish players decide then that they don't want to play at all, then you have things written into the rules for that Finland get a win or whatever. But yeah, a really strange one. But, you know, fortunately he is okay. Been a couple of things like that as well. Like Timothy Castagna's fractured his face, essentially. Yeah. Fractured his eye socket. Same thing as De Bruyne. So the Belgians have two of an injury I didn't know existed outside of boxing until about six weeks ago. <laughs> and uh, who was it? Was it Zhirkov? The rusher who went off with a really bad injury, but seems to be okay as well. Did I have like it a was. spinal injury? So... Don't know what it is. Like the thing is, they're not like obviously all sort of impact injuries, or in the case of 
Ericsson, you know, you have like a freak sort of incident. So why they seem to be happening so regularly is a really strange one. It is indeed. And the, the good news is, as we said, that Ericsson is now stable in hospital. Um, he's released a statement himself. Um, I believe he's being fitted with a, uh, a heart, I think it's called a heart starter or an ICD or something like that, which is similar to what, um, I can't think of his name, had one, a daily blend of the Netherlands had one fitted as well. Um, and actually, uh, Ericsson's Denmark play later on today in about an hour, half an hour's time before they kick off against Belgium. Uh, and Ericsson's hospital bed is within earshot of the Park and Stadium in Copenhagen. So, one more thing, oh, one yeah, more thing I want to say on that. Uh, real classy from Finland when they did score and it was their first goal in a major tournament, they didn't celebrate. And like, how hard that has to be to turn that off even in that situation. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're scoring with their only shot in the entire game yeah. as well. Um, so we, at the time of recording, as I've said, we've just witnessed North Macedonia heartbreakingly lose to Ukraine. Um, so gentlemen, who's impressed you most so far in the tournament? Any particular players or teams who have really caught your eye? I'm going to say Italy right off the bat. Yep. They were a bit of an unknown coming into this. And I also have to say Austria. I think that obviously they didn't play against the best opponent, but I have them winning today. I think they're going to. They especially Sarbitzer, or however you pronounce it, Sarbitzer, Sarbitzer. I mean that that pass, that first goal they have is amazing, really amazing. Oh, incredible! I think he's a lot better. We don't watch a lot of Bundesliga, I know, like out of this group, but he's he seems like the real deal. Yeah, I think there's there's two like teams I would say like complete teams in this tournament. Italy are one. I agree on that. Like they. They haven't got into top gear and they've won two games 3-0. They've scored 31 and conceded zero in their last 10. They conceded four in the 10 games before that. They conceded three in the 10 games before that. They conceded <laughs> seven goals in 30 games. So like Ludicrous. Yeah. And they're going to have to come. And the only team I can see stopping them is France, who also looked they are against harder opponents than, than either of the ones France had to face. I don't think Germany were great. We'll talk about that in a bit, but... Italy and France look like the best teams and the best squads. And then if I had to pick out a player, I um, Lukaku looked great. I talked a lot in the yeah. last one hour. I think Lewandowski is the best number nine in the world. I hadn't seen Lukaku play in a bit. <laughs> and then he came in like that second goal particularly is, I think that was his first two touches of the whole second half. It came late on. He took one touch to get the ball out of his feet, one touch to rifle it into the back of the net with his weak foot. He is, you know... If you have a world-class striker up front, then they might only need a chance, and suddenly you're you're back in a game where you were weren't you know in it, or you are you're suddenly winning a game that you perhaps don't have the right to, to be winning, which could be massive in the knockout stages. Well, going on to the the point about Italy, I agree they they've they've looked incredible, and certainly you know Chad and I picked them as our our team to win it at the start of the tournament. Um, Italy centre back Giorgio Chiellini for, said for him that England look the most complete team at the Euros so far. Is that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, pinch of salt stuff from Chiellini, or do we actually see anything from England against Croatia which suggests that they will go quite far? I think you can only measure a team against the opponents they play. I don't think Croatia or anything. I thought their midfield was really poor. Um, I, who was at Kramaric up top? Didn't really get the ball. They didn't really threaten even after going 1-0 down. You know, I think the hard thing for England is... You've got Scotland next, which is um, going to be a game as much on, on emotion as anything else. You've then got the Czech Republic. Theoretically, England, even if they just get a point or out the group then, 
like not having a hard group is great, but then if you suddenly come up against someone good in the in the knockout stages, then it's a real test. So I think it's hard to measure this England side. I don't think they are of the like I say, I think those top two are clear of France and Italy of everyone in the tournament, including England for me. But we've you know got a long way to go. So yeah, not having a tough group definitely does hurt you because you have no, you're an unknown quantity going past, like getting out of the group. And especially like if, if England win, they got to play the winner of was to be it'll either be Germany, France, or Portugal, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like that's a real step up in talent level right there. It's gonna be tough. It absolutely would be. Um, we've seen some moments of individual brilliance so far. Um, I'm guessing we're all aligned that Patrick Schick's goal against Scotland is the goal of the tournament so far. Can that be bettered? <laughs> That's a good question. Like I said, England need to just, after they go up a goal or two on Scotland, just start shooting from the halfway line <laughs> the entire time. That's the entire second half gunning from the halfway line. <laughs> I think um, you always get a great team goal in the tournament. You always yep. get one that's 15 or 16 passes back to front, slotted in. It would have to be a fantastic one of those to beat that. But I just think the mental imagery of how much that ball curved. Oh, the curve was unreal. Early, yeah, how early he knew he was going to do it. And the fact that then satisfying for everyone except our resident goalkeeper on the call, just seeing a keeper <laughs> sprawled out in their own net. Um, yeah, that was, it, was, it was great. It was fantastic. And then another shout out to uh, Andre Yarmolenko. His goal against the Dutch was one more for the uh, the football purists. One of the kind of cut inside in the left foot, curl at top corner, an absolute thing of beauty there. Uh, I, my um, personal favourite goal so far was uh, was Goran Pandev's against Austria for reasons we'll get onto later on as we talk <laughs> a little bit of pandemonium. On the Yarmolenko note, I do just want to say he was absolutely woeful for the rest of that game. <laughs> he missed a fair few chances. <laughs> He contributed nothing, and then he cut in and got the goal. Like that's it. That's what he does. That is what his career at West Ham appears to be as well. So you so, were saying that y- Yarmolenko for that game was pretty underwhelming by the goal. Let's think about underwhelming on a tournament basis so far. Who has been, you know, I guess not necessarily in the sense of the worst team, but a team who we thought would do okay has been underwhelming, or players that we thought would be key players who have perhaps albeit in only one or two games so far, perhaps not lived up to the, the heights we thought they would do. Uh, I've got, personally, I've got down uh, tur- a few teams. I'll start with Turkey in Group A. A lot of people thought that they were, you know, a young team, an exciting team, a potential to pull up a few trees, and they, they've, they've been awful. Awful, awful. This is, you know, my favourite thing to do, to skewer teams. Turkey literally stopped playing football against Wales. <laughs> with 10 minutes to go, they just stopped. Like, if you watch the second goal again, so you're in a game where you need to get something. You need to get a point to keep yourself alive. Wales missed the penalty from Gareth Bale, who did that, and everything else he did in the game was fantastic. And then they just don't go for it. The players give up. You watch the second goal. They do the same thing from the other side for a corner where Bale just runs towards the goal. Nobody does anything. On the second goal, it's exactly the same. And you can just see Soyuncu, the Leicester centre-back, looking at everybody else, wondering what on earth, why have they stopped playing? Like, it was real, like, schoolboy stuff. And I thought, you know, pretty pathetic to just, oh, well, you know. And what's nominally a home game for them in, in, in Baku, you know, with the amount of Turkish fans in Azerbaijan generally lining up the Turkey in sort of, you know, football tournaments and who they support, like, 
And then, you know, they put in a lot of little fouls, you know, Yilmaz got worked up. I thought it was really, you know, I didn't, I thought they'd finish fourth in the group, but I didn't think they'd come out, you know, with a goal difference of negative five after two games. And you say, that's probably kind to them. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I don't think any of us had them pulling up any trees in our pre-tournament predictions, but equally, you know, there was that caveat of, you know, young team, maybe they can do bits, but they've shown absolutely Absolutely nothing there. Um, another one that I've got down is, you might think it's a bit of a strange one, seeing as they ultimately, ultimately won their first game. Uh, but the Netherlands, to me, looked like a team whom we spoke about in, the, in, in episode one, how I had them doing quite well. Chad, you weren't as convinced. And uh, I think you've, you've, despite the result and them winning the game against Ukraine, I think you'll ultimately be proven right to go 2-0 up and throw it away uh, you know, obviously got the the winning goal, but I thought they were quite fortunate. I thought it was some yep. poor Ukrainian goalkeeping to to give them a couple of their goals, and and, and clearly not even being able to see out a tuna lead at a major tournament against a team like Ukraine, who you would expect them to be, is a is a big concern. I think Jorginho Wijnaldum dragged them through large portions of that game, kicking and screaming through the middle. Um, but yeah, no, I didn't really surprise me. I was surprised they got the winner after letting it to it. Yeah, like I said, I have Austria to beat them today. I actually, after that, after seeing that performance last time, I bet heavy on that today. <laughs> it was like, there's no way after seeing that happen. That was, how do you blow a two-goal lead against, you know, no offense to Ukraine, but that was awful. Yeah. And then another one I just wanted to, to mention here, and we'll probably cover it more in the, in the next little section that we do, is that they had something in the region of 80% of the ball, but Spain looked, looked pretty toothless. And I know that... Uh, that somebody on this call has a particular affinity to Alvaro Morata. <laughs> um, <laughs> why couldn't Spain break Sweden down? They're the opposite of Belgium. I'm not saying that Belgium don't have a rest of the team, but when we're talking about how a number nine can turn up and do things, if you're going to go and play a team, and we'll probably talk about this in more detail later, but who are just going to play the way Sweden did, you need when you get one or two chances to convert them. And, and, and they didn't, and they didn't have a plan B. And it was very... I know people have said that they didn't enjoy watching that game. That's on Spain to me, not on Sweden. That that game wasn't fun to watch. Yeah, Murata was just, I mean, that's just the, the amount of sitters he just missed. And for those who don't know, I'm a Chelsea supporter. When he started at Chelsea, the first couple of months, was they were glorious. And then that happened. And people were making the comparison to him and Timo Werner, how Timo Werner hasn't converted a lot of chances. But he gets assists. He does a lot of off-the-ball work. He's... It literally creates so much more in, in his game. Murata just doesn't. Like, he doesn't. It's yeah. nothing. It's, it's awful. So, we touched on it briefly there, and I think we can get into a little bit more detail on that now. What we've seen, and I'm sorry, Chad, you've got something. Yeah, just before we, I think there's a couple of more underwhelming teams I'd like to talk about just before we Let's do it. Oh, yeah. Paul I also have one. Um, Germany, I thought against France. France, like I say, are a very good team. Germany didn't have a coherent plan of attack. Like, I think you couldn't... They, they had Tony Kroos sitting at the... Fantastic player, sitting at the base of midfield. Whenever they get the ball, they drop it back to Kroos, and that would give France time to get back in a, a back four of Pavard, Hernandez, Kimpembe, and Varane, world-class. And then with a, a middle three of Kante, Rabiot, and Pogba sitting in front of it. You're not going to break through that. <laughs> so they had to go. They And then... I don't really see what the plan was from Lord Blake. He brought Kevin Volland and number nine on and put him at left wing back. Why? I thought when Leroy Sane came on, he looked very, very poor. I um, 
it's really disappointed in them and their lack of game plan. And then I feel like I'd like not to talk about it, but I think I have to talk about the fact that I put Poland as my dark horse <laughs> and they lost 2-1 to Slovakia. They yeah, that, was, that was the next one I had on my list yeah. as well, too. I mean, own goal and a red card. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a self-imploded. Disaster. The own, yeah, the own goal's tough because it's bounced off the post and, and gone in off Chesney's head or his arm or whatever. But the red card is baffling. You know, Krakowiak, who's got it, has played top-level football. You know, France, Spain, England. It's 1-1. The commentator said, a couple of minutes before he got sent off, Slovakia will bite your hand off for a 1-1 draw here. And yeah. so he goes and gets a second of two stupid fouls. And then you're up against it. And maybe you survive that 1-1. Maybe you lose 2-1, as they did. But it was just an absolute implosion. And I feel like, you know, on such moments can like a tournament hinge if you're not one of the favourites. They've now got to get something from Spain, possible, you know, certainly, if they're, if they're going to go through. And they've got to get past the Sweden team who we've seen are, are really organised. So, you know, it's just shooting yourself in the foot. And, you know, he's the, the player who stands out. You know, I'm glad he got a red, given that I predicted 21 red cards and he's the only one <laughs> so far. But, um, I, uh, I, you know, the, it's just a moment of stupidity from an experienced player is, is you know, if you're a Poland fan or if someone for your country does that, you know, you can't help but be mad at them. Yeah. So we touched on briefly the, the fact that Sweden had something, well, sorry, Spain had something like 80% possession in their game against Sweden. And we've seen uh, in other games, you know, Hungary put up a big fight against Portugal. Ultimately, the barricades were battered down with about 10 minutes to go. Germany, France was inherently cautious at the start. You know, there wasn't, I think it's a, the lowest XG. I know that we, you're a big fan of that metric, Chad. The lowest XG <laughs> in a European game for a long time. Uh, I just we, want to jump in there and say Patrick Slick's wonder goal is worth 0.01 XG. That's something it doesn't. What's the point? So we've seen we've seen quite a lot of KG affairs and a lot of defence first football. How have you found that as uh, as a neutral viewer for the majority of these games? Like we said, we saw ninety minutes of Spain just passing the ball around and Sweden getting you know nine men behind the ball. Have you found that exciting, or have you found that a bit of a bore? I mean, as neutral as it could be here. Obviously, I'm an American. I am a little rooting interest for England, but uh, I do I do find it pretty interesting. I like it because sometimes there's too many goals. It just it it kind of devalues a lot of the tactics of the game and everything like that. It's it's nice seeing. I think Germany using the Germany France um, game isn't the best thing because big teams. How often is a Champions League final or a World Cup final anything like a very close game? Because big teams always play against each other. KG, but um, I, I mean I, I find it fun. I know that a lot of uh, neutrals do not, but. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think you've got to play what's in front of you. So if you're, you know, if you're looking at that Spain-Sweden game, what do you want Sweden to do? Do you want Sweden to say, well, we'll try and attack and we'll lose 2-0 and that's great because that'll be more fun for people. I really exactly. enjoyed watching that game, partly because Spain didn't get a late winner, but also because Sweden had a couple of chances. They missed a couple of great chances. It's a legitimate tactic to play against a team who are technically far superior to you. When you're looking at the combined age of the two players on the right-hand side for Sweden is 70. Mm -hmm. And they're then, you know, one of them is a 36-year-old um, right winger who's been playing back in Sweden for, for three years. You know, it's probably not the <laughs> highest level in Seb Larsson. I don't understand what people want them to do. 
Like, that is a perfectly legitimate way to play. I think what you find with Hungary, you know, why did Hungary lose 3-0 to Portugal? I'm not sure 3-0 is, you know, super, um, you know, doesn't reflect truly that maybe that should have been a 1 or a 2-0, but they did sort of capitulate. They didn't have an output. They had a big, slow number nine up top who doesn't have a great career goal-scoring record in his, you know, in his 30s. Whereas Sweden, they looked at Isak up top, who you talked about on last pod, has been a potential player. So they had an outlook. When they got the chance, they went for it. That's the fine way to play football. You've got to set up the who's in front of you. And if you are Spain, and I've said earlier, you know, to me, it's on Spain if people didn't enjoy watching that game. They didn't come with a plan B. They came with a, well, we'll just keep passing and we'll get there eventually. You know, a lot of Spanish fans aren't happy that Morata plays over Moreno up top, and maybe that's part of it. But you've got to... Teams have got to play what's in front of them. Sweden have made a blueprint for how to play against Spain. It's going to be really interesting to see what Poland and Slovakia do, particularly that Slovakia now only need a point to get through the group. Really, they may, you know, yeah, certainly, you know, should put them in, in, in a good chance of it. Like, I'm really interested in, in things like that. There's different ways to play football. Yeah, 5 0 drubbing is good fun sometimes, but as you say, dude, to get bored of it, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely do get bored. And Again, as a neutral, like that Hungary game is a great example of it. But I'm not rooting for either of the teams. Figured it was going to be an easy win for Portugal. And now you're into what's the first goal came in the 82nd or 83rd minute. Like it came yeah. towards the end. And like it just gets more and more interesting as it goes on. It's like you said, you like now you got the teams like the attacking team, Portugal in this case, yeah. has to find a plan B. And they finally do break them down. And it's, it's great to watch. It's, it's fun on a tactical sense. Like, yeah, I, I agree. And I think to, and to bring France Germany into this, Sweden did exactly what France did after they scored, except they didn't have Kylian Mbappe up top. So, you know, France <laughs> sat back, play a tactic. All right, we'll draw you one, we'll draw you one, and we're going to send one of the world's best and probably the world's fastest footballer on you. And he's going to have, you know, Griezmann and Benzema and, you know, Pogba and whoever else gets up there coming in and attacking and Tillis after, and all these great options. Sweden don't have that. Slovakia don't have that. Ukraine, you know, most teams in the tournament don't have that. So you've got to play to your strength. And I think different teams are going to play different styles of football. And that's great. That's what makes football interesting. If everybody, yeah, like you said, play to your yeah. strength and play the team in front of you. You can only yeah. play against the team in front of you. Yeah. Well, you, men- you mentioned Mbappe there and, and how France have that lethal counter-attacking threat. They have the ability to kind of soak up any pressure that a big team like Germany can, can exert on them. And then having that, that pace and power that M- Mbappe has, as well as his tactical nous. I say that, but how frustrating would you be as a France fan when you have the fastest player on the planet, arguably in Mbappe, against 35-year-old Mats Hummels at the back, and he's offside twice in two breakaway goals? Let's assume, let's just say for all intents and purposes, that that first goal hasn't gone in, and it's nil-nil. You've had the... Why is Mbappe finding himself offside there? That's going to be frustrating. I just want to say you've stitched up Mats Hummels there. He's 32. He's just all in <laughs> <laughs> like some people are slow. Let's not shame slow people. That's uh, true. David, David Beckham wasn't fast, but it's a fantastic wing. Well, the point um, the point still stands regardless of age. Why is why is Mbappe finding himself offside, albeit marginally? But there shouldn't be there shouldn't be any any reason to be even that close against a back line that has Matt Summers in it with the pace that he has. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah. So, so there's 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 that. Um, do we expect to see more of this or do we think as the tournament progresses that teams will kind of get that first win or the first point on the board that they were looking for against the big teams and then maybe play with a bit more you know, expansive? Or do we see this kind of being more a systemic way that a team's going to play if it's successful in their first game? 
I think Jared... Sweden, yeah, sorry. No, I, just, I don't see why Sweden would change. They're going to be a bit more attacking because they're playing lesser teams, but like it's a tactic that works for you. So keep doing it. If any breakdown fix it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that Germany and France not playing against each other are definitely going to open up a bit. I mean, they do both have to play Portugal. That'll probably be a cagey game. But uh, who's the fourth member in that group? Hungary. Yeah, Hungary is going to have a tough time. <laughs> I feel like those two teams are going to uh, go off on them. I think England's going to wake up a little bit more, too. The first game, they, they were good. They were decent. But I do think they are going to open up a little bit more, hopefully. Yeah. And um, Yeah. But, I mean, like you said earlier, that Sweden gave everybody the blueprint there. And if you're a smaller team that makes it further in this tournament, you're going to have to play defensive and play to your strengths. And like you said, no one has, not everyone has an Mbappe or, you know, mm-hmm. any of these world-class players. So they're going to have to keep playing to their strengths. Yeah. And, and I think particularly the later on you go, when you get a knockout, you know, you just got to play the team that's in front of you. So somebody somehow has got to come up with a way to stop France doing that. You know, you've got to stop them getting that first goal, really, because that counter-attack is going to be, be deadly or, or whatever it might be. Or you've got to find a way to... Is there anyone out there who can man-mark Romelu Lukaku at the game? You know, (laughs) I wouldn't want to be the man tasked with that job, Um, even though I am bigger and stronger than him. Um, But I also think, you know, the the, the third match day is always a bit of a crapshoot because, you know, everything's fluctuating. People, you know, there's goals going in at the other ground. You need to see. So that one will be a bit more open. But when you look at knockout football, it's a legitimate tactic to play for extra time and play for penalties and, have, you know, a fast fast lad up top and just hope that he can break away and get that goal. Most of the time, it doesn't work because better teams show through, but it's a way to play. And I think if I'm watching this and I'm a team that's going to do that, you're looking at Spain. I think for me, just based on historic stuff, you're probably looking at England. You're looking at the Netherlands and you're saying that could work against them. They might not be able to break us down if we are compact and we are, Discipline, and that takes skill to be disciplined for that long, and a lot of fitness to chase the ball like that for ninety minutes. So no one wants to chase shadows like that for ninety minutes. Yeah. and that's how that's why so often actually you do see. I mean, poor old Hungary, as we said, you know they did so well to keep Portugal at bay, even had a goal of their own disallowed for offside by VAR. It's so often the case that once that that the big team gets one, the floodgates sort of open. Um, so let's just go back to the point you made about Sweden, how they ground out a nil-nil against. You know, one of the big teams in Spain, Chad, you've said there it's a pretty decent tactic to have in knockout football. You know, maybe hold it nil-nil throughout time winning on penalties. Mm-hmm. How, would, how would this reflect on Euro 2020 as a tournament if, by the very margin, you know, smallest possibility, Sweden were to get out of their group, having played all this way, and then won all of their knockout games on penalties after nil-nil draws, averaging 25% possession? Is that good for football? Greece won Euro 2004, and it's the best thing to ever happen in the Euros. And I don't think they attacked <laughs> once in the whole tournament. Well, Greece have, Greece have the lowest ever average percent possession to win a major tournament across any continent. They had 39% average possession when they won Euro 2004. And everyone's favourite XG metric for that entire tournament for Greece was 4.5, I believe. The whole tournament. The, the seven whole games. tournament. Six, six games back then. The whole tournament. <laughs> like, look, I... Don't get me wrong. I like... I like teams to play a different way. I'm not against tiki-taka or possession football. I'm certainly not against, you know, the way um, some teams just go for it. That's great. That's brilliant. You know, the traditional Dutch way of playing a 4-3-3, you score five, we'll score six, you know, whatever it might be. But I don't think it reflects badly on the tournament. Like, this is a, it's a meritocracy sport at the end of the day. You get the result you deserve. 
And particularly now they may be brought in VAR, you could say more than ever, you get the result you deserve. You don't get your dodgy goal. You don't get your handball goal, you know, supposedly. You know, occasionally things slip through. But, you know, if, it's, if that's doing what it's meant to do and improving um, the fairness and the accuracy of decisions, then whoever wins this tournament, you know, will deserve to win it. And even if that's not being particularly exciting, even if that's getting an easy run to the final, at the end of the day, the finalists are two teams who've beaten all the other teams. It's that simple. And I don't... If you win a tournament like this, you deserve to win the tournament like this. Maybe you didn't deserve to win the final, some people would say, if you nick one one nil or whatever, but that's it. That's what, just win the games. It's that easy. Like, it doesn't matter what way you do it. It doesn't matter if you're gambling on, oh, we'll just... If a team like if a team decides their entire tactic, let's say England go tomorrow, all we're going to do is shoot at David Mark from forty five yards because he's <laughs> he might fluff one, he might be so uptight that he'll fluff one, and you win one nil. That still counts the same as dominating eighty five percent of possession and winning one nil. I, yeah, I think a lot of people get really purist about ways to play football. Like there are things that are more aesthetically pleasing, but as long as you're not going out to injure other players and kick lumps out of people. It's all fair game, and that's why it's such a good sport. That's why, for me personally, this is a more interesting sport than anything else because the variety of ways you can play this game, you know, other sports pale in comparison. Does this give more weight to the likes of Italy and Belgium being the the bigger favourites to win this tournament? Because they've come up, Italy now twice, have come up against teams who have wanted to keep them at bay, but Italy have just picked them apart with absolute ease, whereas the likes of Spain albeit you could argue against a better on-paper opponent than Sweden, who did equally sit back, were unable to do so. Does this suggest that Italy are perhaps the one who, if you were to sit back, you could equally get as punished as you would be for playing expansively? I mean, their attack did look great, Italy. I mean, I didn't think they would do that well. And now, like I said, everyone's saying they're the one who's impressed us so far. But you never know, though. I mean, like Chad said earlier, you can only play the team in front of you. And comparing two teams to play the same way doesn't always work. You know what I mean? And I do, I want to go back to the, is this bad for, for the tournament or football? I, I hate, I, I personally hate that, that whenever someone brings that up, it's a, a different tactic or a way of playing or anything like that. As long as it's in the rules, it's in the rules. That's how you play. Yeah. If you went on penalties, you went on, you know, extra time, whatever it is, you win. It's still, it's, it's not like you changed the rule mid tournament. Yeah. The idea of things being bad for football runs you down a slippery slope where, you end up in a European Super League because the teams who want to win don't win. Is that like less was Leicester winning the title bad for football? <laughs> Absolutely, because because no, because they, they didn't have all the star names. They didn't. They play counter attack football. But, but football. exactly. Well, to to that point, they, they they played in a in a style of football which was exciting to watch. The the yeah. counter argument to to the likes of Sweden was it wasn't overly exciting to watch. Fine. Make, then if you're saying, if you're going out, if I'm going to watch two teams play, I'm going to watch Spain and I'm going to Sweden, and I have to put the onus on one of them to make that game exciting, I'm going to go for the one that's got $400 million worth of players on the pitch or whatever much that squad is worth. You know, it's... I like, I don't... I get it. I get that people want to be entertained and they want to watch things, but there is entertainment to be found in that sort of thing. There is a lot of entertainment when it's not your team. And watching your team not win a game they should win. It is that's very true. You know, it's the most Schadenfreude, celebrate the misery of others, like brilliant. And you know, it's gonna come back to bite me when Scotland beat England 1-0 tomorrow. But um, (laughs) it's that it is joyful to be like, go on, Sweden, go on, get this done, get this done. You know, it's a shame that 
you know, North Macedonia sort of capitulated a little bit in their games, or that Hungary did capitulate late. You want, you know, tournaments like this are also about underdog sort of things, and Sweden were the underdog there. There, there really is nothing yeah. like watching another team just not being able to break down someone yeah. and just seeing the frustration build up and build up and build up. It's great. It's the yeah. best thing is neutral. Yeah. I'll take that over a four or five game any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, something else which could have provided an element of frustration uh, is VAR. And uh, I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on this because when going back to the, to the Premier League, VAR tends to take center stage and frustrates everyone with all these crazy decisions and taking ages over making, you know, what should be a relatively straightforward decision. How have you found VAR in this tournament so far? I'm going to say, I think VAR has been run much better, not just in this tournament, but pretty much everywhere else than the premier league, at least in my experience, I do watch a, a fair amount of MLS, decent amount of um, a, a fair amount of Bundesliga, especially since the pandemic and when they were the only, uh, only show in town and, you know, obviously other European competitions. And I feel like they all kind of run VAR a lot better than the, than the Premier League. I don't understand why they do it so wrong, but it just seems like they take too long every time. And it seems like they still get decisions wildly wrong. But it, this, it's, this hasn't been as big of a distraction as we thought it would be going into this, or at least as I thought it would be after watching this season of the Premier League. I agree. Uh, yeah, I agree completely, I think. You want it to be as unintrusive as possible. The downside of VAR that I don't know if they'll ever be able to fix is the sort of tension it takes out of stadiums. Someone scores a goal, is it going to get clawed back? Even if it doesn't, you know, for any borderline goal, it, it takes a bit away from it, you know. But um, I think generally it's been good. You know, it's been, yeah, done much, much better than it is in the Premier League. I also think the standard of refereeing has been really good. I think they've let games flow. Yeah. I think games have had a bit of physicality without being rough. So play teams have been able to play different styles of football, but also like games aren't really... So what you find with a lot of tournaments, I find, is often the football is really stop-starty because they'll give a foul early on, five, ten minutes, and you've got to keep that consistency. So as long as it's consistent and, you know, shoulder barges are fine and, you know, non-reckless tackles are, are fine, then I think, you know, it allows the games to flow. And I think that's part of what's made... I've really enjoyed this first round. Generally, this first round of fixture has been great. And I think part of that, you know, you want your referees to be as unintrusive as possible. And that's what they've been. And when they've needed to, they've come out and, you know, they've done the VAR checks, they've given yellow cards, whatever it might be. But generally, you know, I think it's credit to the refs and credit to VAR and showing leagues like the Premier League or maybe just the Premier League that it can be done well. I will say too, and I could be wrong on this, but if I read correctly, that there all the VAR goes to one place, like one central location, as opposed to having a VAR ref for every specific match. Do you guys hear that as well, or am I wrong on that? Sounds right. <laughs> I, yeah, try yeah. I, I try to spend I, as little time as possible thinking about VAR. So, I'm just <laughs> but but I will say that that's something I think the Premier League should look into. I know it's a little off sport here, but something the NHL does for their version of VAR, where it all goes to one place, where you have the same team making the decisions every time where even if you disagree with it, at least there should, in theory, should be a lot more consistency as opposed to having a different VAR ref for every match. It's just my own two cents on that. So one thing I wanted to just touch on is uh, obviously the, the offside piece of, you know, scoring a goal and having it heartbreakingly ruled out for offside, which is what happened to, in the likes of Hungary. One thing that I found frustrating myself, and I want to get your guys' thoughts on this, again, it's not necessarily a European Championship-specific thing, is this new... UEFA or FIFA regulation or request to linesmen to keep the flag down 
for as long as possible, let the play unfold, you know, potentially a goal to be scored. The argument with VAR is that it's ruining all these moments where you can score a goal or have this moment of magic and then have it chalked off later on for the smallest offence or the smallest margin for, for an offside. But surely this initiative from UEFA or FIFA to keep the flag down, where I've seen some decisions where it's obviously offside. Happened today. Exactly. Why? That's the one thing that I think is, you know, pretty, pretty poor. Yeah, well, you're creating a situation where, like, the one thing we don't want is going to keep happening. A guy's two, three feet offsides, linesman keeps the flags down, he scores, everyone starts celebrating, and like you know, it's coming back on TV. But if you're if you're a fan at the, at the actual match, you might not have the angle to see it and all that. It's just it seems like they're creating they're making the problem worse by keeping the flag down for obvious calls. Yeah, I, 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 hate, I agree completely. I hate talking about referees. Yeah, <laughs> find it so tedious. They have to do it because doing that 99 times is better than one time putting the flag up and it was a goal. Like, so I get it's like if you don't want that to happen, get rid of that. Like, that's your they're your options, they're your things. And regardless of which side you sit on that line, um, you know, that you can't have one without the other. You can't, but, you, but some of these decisions have been so obvious that. You know what? What purpose at this point would a linesman serve other than ball in and ball out? If you if they can't put their flag up for a guy being five yards offside, who then has to dribble eighteen yards and score just to rule that out at that point, what purpose are they serving? Well, you know the robot linesmen are on their way. Then it'll be the robot refs and the robot footballers, mate. And then we won't have to worry about it. It'd just be programmed. Good. <laughs> That's the Super League. Super League at the end of the road. Uh, yeah. And Chad, just to touch on your point about referees wanting to let the game flow and not setting precedents for calling small fouls early on, you know, 21 red cards and uh, your prediction. You've only had one so far. As we interrupt and we've just heard that Denmark have taken the lead against Belgium and the BBC Sport live commentary has just said the word "wow," so we can only assume it's a moment of magic. Has well, anyone got access to the game right now? I don't think it's going to help for us to try and describe it on it's the. It's not going to help. Us. <laughs> I've also called this the radio like I'm 85. What was the question <laughs> before this? Uh, no, I, I was asking you, just going back to your point about referees letting the game flow, that you predicted 21 red cards, and you've only had one so yeah, far. Yeah, they've let the game flow too much. You know. I'll talk about referee until the cows come home. I've always said that. And I just think, <laughs> you know, again, clerical error. Um, <laughs> I was very happy, as much as I've said it was a stupid thing to see that Polish red. I think Alioski got away with one in the, the North Macedonia game. Generally, there haven't been that many tackles flying in, which is, you know, you, you know, the last thing you want to see is players get injured. So that's great, you know. Well, you'd expect to see some. It's generally knockout rounds where people lose their head, last man. Or, or that final game of the group stage. Do I think 21 red cards is still possible? Of course I do. There's a brawl <laughs> coming. I, the best case scenario for me is an entire coaching staff getting sent off. And I think that can happen. I'll not lose hope. So over the next coming days, we have two big games, which I want to get you guys' thoughts on. And we're going to start with tomorrow's fixture between England and Scotland, the old enemy, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern. Uh, last time England played Scotland was in June 2017 in a World Cup qualifier. Lee Griffith scored two late free kicks, almost identical for Scotland, as they took a 2-1 lead, only for Harry Kane to equalise for England in the 93rd minute. The England team that day included the, the likes of Chris Smalling, 
uh, Ryan Bertrand, Adam Lalana, and how about this one? Jake Livermore was in the England team that day. Uh, a big game, considering Scotland lost their opening game to Czech Republic, as mentioned. How do we see this one going, gents? I mean, Scotland really do have the back up against the wall. I had them picked to go into the knockout rounds, which it does not look very good right now. But, um, I mean, I, I, I think England's going to win. I think they're going to win pretty big, especially after having a uh, – not huge, but I think they're going to put up two or three goals on them. I think that Scotland looked very, very, very disorganized. Even that wonder goal aside, like they looked awful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have Scotland second in this group based purely on thinking they, they, they coast past the Czech Republic. Maybe it's a bit of overestimating one and underestimating the other. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I just, I was really disappointed in Scotland. I don't quite see again what they were going for. You know, you're at home, you're at, and then, you know, you should be on the front foot or at least trying to be. And they played Lyndon Dykes up top, who's a championship-level target. Man, he's a good footballer, but he's not great. They've got Che Adams on the bench, who everyone in Scotland, apart from Steve Clark, the manager, wants to start that game. And they didn't, they didn't really create anything. I, I'm worried because it's England versus Scotland. That's the only thing. Like, you said, the emotion here, you know, it's probably one of the games where you've got the most likelihood of away fans being a a part of it who knows quite they are there i actually saw videos today of them showing up to uh yeah, yeah. so it's it's going to be interesting but this is the sort of game where if england want to be taken seriously like france germany or belgium you need to win this game two to nil three to nil you need to say we are a step above you yeah they've got some good players you know you've got um, John McGinn is a Premier League player, Tierney, if he's fit, which is obviously a big loss for, for Scotland. You've got Andy Robertson. But, you know, you've got a 35-year-old championship goalkeeper in goal, regardless of the wonder goal, you know. This is what you're talking about. You've got championship centre-backs. You've got championship strikers or, or, or Che Adams, you know, a lower Premier League striker if he starts. This is the sort of thing where you should play like Italy played against, you know, look what Italy did to Switzerland, who are, who are a better team than Scotland. Just go and do that. It's that simple. Go and do that. That's easy. <laughs> That's what it should be. If England are what people want, what English people want England to be, then you go, you coast through this game, you've got six points, you're through, you sort of get a week to you know, calm down and, and then go and play the Czech Republic. We'll see on Scotland, though. I do hope to see uh, we, we Billy Gilmore get some time. He didn't get any minutes in the last match. Big fan. He's up and coming Chelsea player. Just want to give him a shout out because uh, I think he's going to be special one day. So for, in, in the case of England, do we think that, I mean, the first 15 minutes of the game against Croatia, they came out the blocks really lively. The game ended up being a bit more cagey than perhaps we'd have liked it to be. But is that potentially one where you win the game against Croatia in any fashion and that gives you the freedom to go out and enjoy these next two games? The freedom to enjoy them, I don't, you still got to get the job done. This is my worry with, with, with England and the way the English media is and England fans often are. You're not through. You've won one game against a Croatia team who I thought were very, very poor. I've said that before, but I really did. They created nothing. Again, they look like a team without really a game plan. Um, yeah, maybe even coasted a little bit. It's always nice to get that second goal. You know, Foden had that great chance where he hit the post. Obviously, that came before the first goal. Um, yeah, I thought England were fine. I'm, I, I'm not getting carried away. I thought they were fine. You've got things in that squad. You know, Maguire's potentially coming back, but I thought Mings looked very, very good at the back. Um, it's interesting, you know. I, England, for me, and I know others will disagree with me, 
are one of the hardest teams to make heads or tails out of in this tournament, particularly off that first round of fixtures. I'd agree with that. Um, I'd agree with that. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm interested for how England choose to play against Scotland. I'll be disappointed regardless of result if England don't go for it. You could pick the same 11 and don't mind. They could bring in some of those other creative players. Jack Grealish obviously being the name that springs to mind most. But you've got to look at that, like I say, and say, no disrespect to Scotland, but, but they're a superior team. So let's go for this. Let's go at them. Let's score early. Let's play that game. Let's score early. They have to come at us. You open up the gaps. Let's go for it. Well, a lot of England fans, when the team was announced for the Croatia game, were somewhat bemused. They were saying, you know, you've taken four right backs just so you can play one at left back. And you've played Calvin Phillips, who for me was the best player on the field that day. Yeah. Um, does the result against Croatia, in spite of all these, I mean, England fans are notoriously, you know, difficult to please. Does this result give Southgate kind of, I guess, newfound kudos with the England fans in the sense that as baffling as some of the decisions were on paper, England put in a performance with, to be pretty encouraged about. I mean, like you said, England fans are the most hard to please group of people in the world. You know that tomorrow at you know, 2 p.m. our time, when that lineup comes out, the, the, no matter what it is, same 11, different 11, Grealish starts, there's just going to be people furious about it. And it just is what it is. I've never, I've honestly, as somebody who didn't grow up watching the sport and found it, I have never seen anything like the way the English media treats, not just, you know, club teams, but then especially the national team. It's insane. <laughs> and yeah. to that point that you've made there, Jack Grelish, um, I believe he was Seb's pick for top assister in the tournament, didn't feature at all in the game against Croatia. Um, do we think the team that Southgate picked is an indication of what he thinks is his best 11? And we'll probably start with most of the tournament. And do you think the likes of Grelish will play a key role in this tournament, you know, in, in the future games? Or is he just going to be potentially just a rotation option? Um, I see. This is it, though, isn't it, with England? We won a game. Let's all be happy. Let's not worry about it. <laughs> uh, jobs are good, and, you know. Let's let, let's let Spain have an inquest. They've not done well. Let's let Germany have an inquest. That, I mean, if it works, it works. You know, if we're talking about this with the idea there was all these rumours that they're going to play five at the back with four fullbacks in there or whatever it was, something ridiculous. Like, it's that the same thing. It worked. Maybe that's a team to play Croatia. Maybe that's a team to play every game. Um, I don't know. Like, everyone's going to have their opinions on who should be in there. You know, Seven and I have talked a bit about should Philip start over Henderson when Henderson's fit? I think he should. I don't know whether... Seb's changed his mind, but, you know, he had the perfectly fair thing that Henderson's been there, done that, done it all, and is, is, is a captain and sort of a leader for the team. Like Phillips was brilliant against Croatia. He was. Yeah. Was great. And, and I'm not trying to land Seb in that now. I'm just trying to say that that's a valid opinion to have. And do you, do you rip up everything after one game is the thing? Like, maybe Southgate came into this thinking, I'm only going to play Kieran Trippier for one game this tournament. It's going to be left back against Croatia. So I'll put him in the squad. You know, who knows? Or maybe it's just as simple as I think this is my best 11 to win any game in this tournament. So I don't spend hours on this. And then, you know, it's, it's one game into what at most is a seven-game tournament. So, you know, it's one game, one win. Just be happy. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Now, now, one team that you mentioned there, Chad, in terms of having an inquest uh, would be Germany. And up next for the Germans is a massive game against Portugal after Germany's defeat to France in the group of death. Now, we would still expect Germany to qualify, um, even presumably as a third-place team with that 
we'll call it fail-safe of playing Hungary. Uh, but two defeats out of two, if they were to lose to Portugal, would be another group stage catastrophe, particularly after the 2018 World Cup. Uh, this is the first game between Portugal and Germany since the 2014 World Cup, which Germany won 4-0. And you could also argue here that defeat for Portugal here would have them in a bit of difficulty, although with the, with the goal difference factor uh, there. So it's a big game for both nations here. How do we see this one going, Dukes? I mean, Germany, I think they're in trouble. I think Portugal is going to come out. I think they're going to win. I don't know. I don't really have the tactical reason for it. I just after that, I just want to see Germany lose. That's really what it comes down to. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, all jokes aside, though, I think that like Chad said earlier, they did not have a plan B and against France at all. And obviously that is France. You are playing the best at the reigning World Cup champions and all that. But you still got to now go out against Portugal. And we'll see. That's all I got. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, tactically, it'll be interesting for Germany. Portugal, you guess you know what they're going to do. You know, again, it took them 80 minutes to break down Hungary. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think in this group, I had um, I got very simple on it when I wanted to just random on what I thought the best teams were. I just went France, Germany, Portugal, Hungary. I think, for me, my prediction for this group is France wins every game 1-0. Whoever wins this game, it will go one goal either way. You both pump Hungary, you go through. It's a, it's a peril of the format. I don't. I still don't see any jeopardy in this group, unless Hungary somehow get a result against either Germany or France. Three teams go out of this group. Well, presume well, again. We, let, let's let's assume let's assume that Hungary lose all their games, and then let's just say, for all intents and purposes, for a podcast discussion, that Portugal were to beat Germany two 0 Okay, <laughs> Germany have now faced a three goal uh, negative three goal differential going into their final game against Hungary. Now, we saw at the 2016 Euros that in the third place table that uh, two teams qualified with three points and all of them had uh, a zero goal difference. Portugal drew all three games and Northern Ireland scraped through with one win and two defeats with a yep. zero goal difference. So are we saying here, let's say Germany, Hungary were so resolute in their game against Portugal, another hypothetical here, let's say Germany struggled to break down Hungary. Can we not see potentially Germany going out with three points and a negative goal difference? And I mean, it's in it's in Germany and Portugal's best interest to just draw this game. This is my other problem with this thing. Just go out, draw that game. You both win. You both through. Everybody's happy. Like I don't. It's a hard thing to go for. Like it's hard to know which way this Germany Portugal game is going to go. It's going to be really interesting. I think if Germany go for exactly the same tactic, they'll lose. I made that clear. I thought they were very very poor, but I just. I just think I really don't like the structure of this tournament. And I think what's what this is what it does. It robs some of the excitement. I am fully expecting, and maybe we'll talk about this the next time we talk, you know, depending on if Portugal absolutely thumped Germany or Germany absolutely thumped Portugal. But I'm very confident that three teams are going through from that group. I just don't see, you know, if you're asking me, you've got one team in world football based on history who need to get a 4-0 win to go through. I'd ask for it. I'd ask for it to be Germany, regardless of their standing in football currently. Yeah, they'll figure. I'll get you know they'll score three in the last five minutes and go through. That's what they do. Are we doing Hungary a disservice here? Again, the final scoreline of three 0 against Portugal perhaps slightly flatters the Portuguese, but particularly with how resolute Hungary were and having their goal chalked off, albeit correctly for offside themselves. Can we see them potentially scraping a draw from any of these teams to put them in real or put the opposition in real jeopardy, or are they? Are they effectively bound to three defeats, do we think? 
I don't see them beating France. I mean, maybe Germany, but not France. Not a chance in my mind. But scraping, uh, but, a, scraping a point? Not France. <laughs> for me, Germany, maybe. Maybe scrape one, get a draw, but that's all I can think of. For me, Hungary getting points in this group is not really about Hungary. Somebody else has to not show up. I think yeah. their big problem is they don't. Watching that game, I know admittedly I don't watch a lot of Hungary national team games, but watching <laughs> that game, they don't have an output. There is a difference between playing with nine other, you know, 10 men, including the keeper behind the ball and someone as an outlet, and playing with 10 men or 11 men behind the ball, but having that 10, you know, if you are playing 10 at the back, that 11th man up top is an old target man who didn't seem to have a great touch. He's, I think he's 33 and hasn't scored 100 career goals. He's not going to threat, you know, not going to be a threat. So I just struggled to see Hungary getting a point unless, let's be realistic, Germany capitulate or France do it. Both of those squads have the potential for a bit of infighting and something going wrong, but I, I, I don't see it. I don't see Hungary going home with anything. If I'm being honest right now, I don't see Hungary going home with gold. Yeah, we spoke about that in the first podcast. Would Hungary have their Pandev moment? Well, North Macedonia have officially had a Pandev moment. Um, so to the millions of you listening in Skopje and further afield in North Macedonia, we said it would happen, and it did. Goran Pandev's goal against Austria, and again, he had one disallowed this morning against the Ukraine. Uh, Chad, we spoke over the weekend about how, as an England fan, we take qualifying for major tournaments and participating at major tournaments, and then albeit, albeit ultimately disappointing us. Um, <laughs> we take that pretty much for granted. What would, I mean, again, we, we can't really speak to this, but how would you... If you were a North Macedonia fan, or in this case, a Finland fan at their first major tournament, how much would this mean to you, particularly seeing your, your national hero, your national treasure, you're scoring a goal? Yes, you've lost the game 3-1, and yes, you've scored a goal this morning and, and lost the game 2-1. That must be an unbelievable feeling. Yeah, without being patronised, and it, it's wonderful. And I think the only way we can really do that is, you know, turn to a man on this chat whose team struggles to make the World Cup. How will you feel if Pulisic gets a goal at the 2022 World Cup, given that the U.S. struggles to make it. All right. I, I can't even imagine. Like, I'll go nuts. I mean, we just won the no CONCACAF chat. No CONCACAF chat. We just won the CONCACAF Nations League. And uh, I was going crazy in a hotel room at 1130 at night when we were leaving for a road trip, like midway through a road trip. But uh, but back to that, I can't imagine, especially for one of the smaller nations and not traditional you know, powerhouses. That's It's got to be an amazing feeling. Like Finland, they said, going back to the Ericsson situation, like how they didn't celebrate. I mean, I understand the situation, but that's what a what a range of emotions to experience all at once. Scoring your first goal in a major tournament as a nation, but under those circumstances, not celebrating. Right. Yeah. And you've got to look at that group now. You know, who knows what it's going to be by the time this podcast comes out. But what right now it's one nil Denmark. So everyone in that group will have three points. That's great. You know, then you see what happens, you know, Belgium go up against Finland in the in the last game, don't they? I mean, you're probably gonna bat Belgium, but you never know if it draws enough for Finland to maybe get through. You never know. I mean, again, we have the circumstances to factor in, of course, but Finland beat Denmark 1-0 with one shot compared to Denmark 16 or 17, and they even missed a penalty. So, as we've seen, it's not necessarily about the number of shots or the domination in games. Going back to Spain, Sweden, again, it's all about sticking the ball in the onion bag. I would uh, like to see how often XG is right for games. Because any time I ever see anything <laughs> they go at XG, it's that I can't believe they lost lost the game but won on XG. Maybe that's a bit of uh, whatever the bias, a confirmation bias. 
But I guess you don't really get people sharing, we won on XG, you just share, we won the game. So, I mean, yeah, like, just, well, the only, there's only one stat that matters when, you know, 90 minutes is all said and done. And again, like, and it's XG. Numbers, yeah, yeah, it's XG, and it always has more. XG plus A, I believe, is the one we meant to play. <laughs> That's the best one. Like, look, I think that group could be poised really interestingly. I think you've got to go there, going back to the original question for North Macedonia. They've lost two games, but they've not been played off the park in either of them. They've not, you know, we've looked at, no. you know, you look at... The they've showed up. Yeah, the game that springs to mind to me is when Panama did go to the World Cup and play England and, and lost 5 or 6 nil, whatever it was. That's a completely different feeling. And yeah, fantastic Panama make the World Cup. Wonderful story. We all love it. But you don't want to go there and quite get those those stories. You want to go there and come away with, you know, they've now, you know, a couple of players score. They were in the game for a long time today. They're in the game against Austria, you know, a decent team for a good amount of time. And yeah, I mean, you, you never know how long it's going to last. You look at someone like Wales, you know, 10 years ago today, Wales were 112th in the world ranking. They were below the Faroe Islands. It's crazy. Um, and one of the British radio stations was saying, will Wales ever qualify for a World Cup or a European Championship ever again? You know, so the, these things fluctuate really quickly. So you've got to take, you know, advantage of the good times. And, you know, I think, you know, realistically, do North Macedonia go on and become a force in world football? Probably not, but they've got this tournament. Maybe they've got a World Cup they're qualifying well. Maybe they get two, three, four tournaments out of it, but... You know, you look at the Euros and you look at Albania in the last one, you look at Latvia back in the day, you know, whether that was, you know, 2004 or 2008. Like, teams are going to come and go. So get there, make a good account of yourselves. And you look at Finland's case, maybe that's the good side of this this group system that three go through. You could see a Finland making their way through. How, how good would that be? That's a very good point. It's a very good point. And I would say, you know, North Macedonia have been very unlucky in their games. They've got the goals that they wanted. They've celebrated. Um, and I figured we would actually pay a little bit of homage to, to uh, the people's champions. So we teased it in episode one. Dudes, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. It's an insane game that I've created. It's called North Macedonia or not Macedonia. Right? <laughs> I'm going to give you the names of five. They're all Macedonian people. Okay. I'm going to give you the names of five Macedonian people. And you've got to tell me if they're in the North Macedonia football squad or they're not in the North Macedonia football squad for this European Championships. Okay? Nice and straightforward. We're going to start with Dimitar Kondovsky. Are we playing together or against each other? You, play, you can play together on this. Oh, thank, thank goodness for that. Dimitar Dim- Kondovsky. Combined knowledge. <laughs> There's definitely a Dimitar. I've heard of Dimitar at some point in this tournament. Might not even have been for North Macedonia. <laughs> do we reckon? Yeah. Do we reckon North or not? I'm going North. That's, what do you think? Yeah, that's all I had to contribute. I've heard the name Dimitar at some point in this. Okay, so, so you're going. You're saying that he's in the squad. He's not. He's a Macedonian <laughs> painter, critic, and professor. And in 2012, he was on North Macedonian stamps or Macedonian stamps at the time. That's pretty cool. I like that. Darko Velkovsky. Good name. Good name. It's an awesome name. Darko Velkovsky. I mean, it sounds so good. It has to be a footballer's name. Is that what we're going for? Yeah, I'm with that. Go I mean, this is top logic. It's top it? logic. Darko Velkovsky is a 25-year-old North Macedonian defender. He's in the squad. You're on Has the he board. played? Has he played or is he, has have he you played? got rogue? I, th- I think I tried to, tried to trick you by picking a bench player off the bat. Okay. Oh, no, he, start, he started today. He started today. Okay. What about Kire Ristevsky? 
North Macedonia or not Macedonia? What do you think, Chad? I'm going no. That's my vote. I'm taking anything to do with knowledge of North Macedonia out of this. And I'm <laughs> yes. simply wondering now if he's going to go false, true, false, true, false, or if he's going to put a couple of true back to Oh, back. so you turn this into a logic game? Because there is no logic in North Macedonia. I know much less about North Macedonian football than I do about you. So I have to go for that <laughs> angle. So, I like that. So you were saying false, Dukes. I'm saying false. Yeah, let's say he's gone simple. Let's say he's gone false, true, false. So Kire Ristevski is a 30-year-old defender for oh. North Macedonia. Plays for Ujpest in Hungary. Was he definitely called up? Definitely called up. He was on the bench. Oh. It came off the bench today, I'm afraid. All right. Build that into the logic mechanism. Furhan Hassani. Two to go. Furhan Hassani. What do we reckon? It's got to be no, right? We'll go back with your logic. This, this is, is, quick, this is didn't... quick fire. No, we're quick in. fire. Not Macedonia. Furhan Hassani is a 31-year-old North Macedonian midfielder in oh. their Euro squad. So you've not been a good show in this, boys. This. Well, can you go out with a bang? I'm going to. I'm genuinely you... happy we've got one. Yeah. I want to. I want to get that on record. <laughs> well, take the victories. They've taken everyone's hearts at this tournament, and you've only got one out of four. So you've not been paying <laughs> that close attention. I mean, last pod, you couldn't remember who won Euro 2016. So let those in glass houses not throw stones. Well, I'll tell <laughs> you what, we'll, we'll move swiftly on from that to ask you, is Georgi Kolozov in the North Macedonia squad or not Macedonia? No, no, no. You can't no? do four in a row. All right, well, Georgi Kolozov is one of Macedonia's best-known actors. Of course he is. There's a bonus point enough for here. Uh, Georgi Kolosov was famous for playing the main role in TV series Makononski Narodni Prakashni. What do you reckon that translates as? Could you just tell us what genre of TV show it was? <laughs> I believe sitcom, but I could be wrong with that. It was a, <laughs> well, it makes no sense to be a sitcom because it translates as Macedonian folk tales. He was in that for a good, a good decade plus. Yeah, I wouldn't have got that. I'm going to be honest yeah. with you. Now, whilst, before we move on from North Macedonia, before it looks like we're actually being very insincere when talking about them, I want to give a little special shout out to Jovan Kirovsky. And you might be saying, Mike, who on earth is Jovan Kirovsky? Not is footballer. That... No, Jovan Kirovsky is <laughs> okay. a footballer. Jovan I Kirovsky we is a footballer. Sorry. But in all this, all the American hype about Christian Pulisic being the first American to win the Champions League, Jovan Kirovsky. Let's, let's get that on record. He wasn't. He wasn't. Because oh. Jovan Kurovsky was. Yeah. Jovan Kurovsky was born in California to Macedonian immigrants. Jovan Kurovsky is of Macedonian heritage, but is, is American, and he won the Champions League with Borussia Dortmund in the 90s. Now, the confusion arises because he wasn't technically in the, the, the squad for the Champions League final. However, back in the day, it was a whole five subs thing, not the crazy amount of 12 you can have on the bench now. So Did I'm saying, and he scored, he scored in the tournament. Fairly, oh, sure yeah. fairly sure he's got a medal. So for me, Jovan Karovsky of Macedonian heritage, American nationality, is the first American to win the Champions League, not Christian Pulisic. Got to buy a shirt now. It's the only, only thing I can do, <laughs> buy the shirt. <laughs> so you've essentially Legend. somehow turned this podcast into just slowly slam dunking on American soccer. Uh, the hype around Christian Pulisic, yes. Which, to be fair, all jokes aside, I honestly hate to. I'm a fan. Please stop. Like, <laughs> please stop. 
the, like especially the way ESPN talks about it, it just it it just makes me want to scream. Like, well, dudes, we we can save we can save the uh, the gripes you have with ESPN for the grind my gears corner. But I'm just going to give you a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a some stats and metrics for you. Um, so and, another little a mini quiz, only three for this one. There's an amazing <laughs> stats website called Opta. Okay, and Opta have all sorts of you know, uh, they, they tweet out various little niche statistics. You can tweet them questions and I'll give you the answer to it. I'm going to read you out three statistics from the European Championships and you're going to tell me if they are, if they're true or not. Okay. So the first one is that Andre Yarmolenko and Roman Yaremchuk, they both scored in uh, Ukraine's first game and today against North Macedonia. Uh, they are the first duo to both score in each of their sides opening two matches at the Euros since Alan Zhagwev and Roman Pavlyuchenko for Russia at Euro 2012. Do you reckon that's true or false? That's definitely true. Reckon it's true? Do's go for true as well, yeah? Uh, um, it's false, because it's never, it's never happened before. Yarmolenko and Yaramchuk are the first two, are the first duo to score in both of the teams opening two matches at the Euros in history. Now this one will maybe spin a few heads. Wales have the greatest win percentage in European Championship history with 63%. Is that true or false? Um, so they won, Wales. They won one of two this time. One of two this time, that's correct. They must have done well in the group stage last time. And I can't, I, they, I can't remember if they've been to no Euros or one Euro before that. I think they went to the World, World 58 World Cup in there. That sounds uh, like it could be true. I think it's going to be true. Like you it said, is true. 10 years ago. Yeah. It, it is true, yeah. They've won five out of their eight games in Euro Championship history and are therefore the most, well, the highest win percentage in European Championship history so far. And the final one for you, despite being the, you know, the early stages of match day two, uh, there have already been a tournament record number of own goals. Oh, yes. What do you reckon? True or false? That's right, so the opening goal of the tournament was an own goal, wasn't it? The opening goal was Demirel. there. That was scored by Demerel, yeah. Chesney, we talked about earlier, you know, nodded one into his own net. Yeah. Who else has You got Hummels who... against France. Oh, you're helping us out. That's good. I think there's another one in there. I'm going to yeah, I'm going to give, yeah, four, four feels yeah. like Given that there aren't very many red cards, I'm presuming there aren't very many own goals because all the fun things aren't happening. <laughs> so let's go, yeah, let's go, yeah. I'm in for yeah. yeah. I'm, yep, let's go. It's correct, yeah. So with three own goals so far, the ones we've mentioned, Demiral, Chesney and Hummels, that is a joint tournament record for the most number of own goals in the European Championship. And we still have pretty much, well, over half the tournament to go. A little, little fun fact for you there. Right, to round off, we're going to go to Grind My Gears Corner to wrap up this podcast. Grind My Gears Corner, we'll, we'll try and keep it as a regular thing, depending on how much annoying stuff comes out of these European Championships. Chad, you mentioned... I'm hoping there's going to be lots. I know there's a lot to talk about here. We'll try and keep it short. Chad, you mentioned earlier on this morning uh, to us the little car. That they Where's used. the little car? Where's the little car gone? The opening I game. What they done with the little Turkey. man who was driving it? Well, <laughs> oh, the opening, for those who may not be aware, in the opening game, Italy versus Turkey, the match ball was delivered on a tiny little car and has yet to be seen again. Where's a little car gone? What is the point of using it once? So my, my main theory here, right? So the first game was in was in Rome. The second game was Wales, Switzerland in Baku. Do you think they massively underestimated how long it would take? Oh no, it wasn't. Yeah, it was. 
Do you think they massively underestimated how long it would take the tiny little car to drive from Rome to Baku? Oh, he's still on. He's still on route. They were trying to get one to little car every day. You think it's yeah. one little car? Okay. And what they've probably done now is they said, just cancel that. <laughs> it's going to be tight. Just get yourself to London for the final. So somewhere in around Croatia, he's had to turn around, and it's a race against time. So you're actively. So you, you. So you think there's one little car, and the opposed to just being transported around by someone, it's I mean, driving itself to the various stadiums. It makes sense to me. It's a car. The only way to transport a car is to drive it. There's got to be someone driving it. So there's a little man, presumably the third Insigne brother, given their height, is inside the car and that we're in Rome. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> gone. Yeah, he's got, you know, maybe a, you know, a bit of the way down, down through Croatia or Albania or out that way on the way to Baku, if my geography's right. And they've <laughs> called him around, they're turning. He's probably, I don't know, he might be going through the Alps now and he's on his way back to... He's trying to get to Wembley for the final. I think we'll see him at Wembley. Have I don't at Wembley. Yeah, he, we There's, have to see him at Wembley. And I think yeah. he just also described the plot of the next great Pixar movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, an animated little car just on his way to Baku has to go back to London. Yeah. Now. So we're uh, saying we're saying he was he was there at the first game, and in every game since he's been trying to make it to the stadium before kickoff, and it's been late every time. And it's basically just for the next forty nine games, isn't going to make it to kickoff but he's going to miraculously make it to Wembley for the final. Yeah, I think he's, he's got so far off getting to Baku for game two that they've scrapped all the other games and are just trying to get him to Wembley. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's so what I reckon. I reckon they've had to change the plan. The proper so. road to Wembley now. Yeah, that's, that's what okay. we're looking at. I like um, that. Yeah, Another thing that's grinded my gears, okay? We should have probably talked about it more in the first part. Maybe we touched on it, right? This whole, oh, we're going to play the games all across Europe, right? You're just giving teams unfair home advantage. It's pointless. It's not a level playing field if Italy are playing all their games in Italy and England are playing all their games in England. What, what is the point? Just go back. Why change it? Just have one host country. Be done with it. I get Yes and no. That does, the home advantage thing doesn't bother me. Unless you want to hold the game with no fans, someone at some point is getting an advantage. If you hold it in one, if you just hold it in Italy, Italy are getting an advantage. And Switzerland are getting an advantage because they're next door. And whatever country have the most people living in in Italy, you know, wherever people emigrate to Italy from, are having the advantage. Like, that doesn't bother me at all. If you don't want home advantage, don't play football. Simple. But holding it in one tournament, this is the best possible time to host it in multiple countries because no one can travel. Hopefully this doesn't True. happen again. I don't mind when you host, like, Japan and South Korea for the World Cup because you could probably they're never going to get it just as a solo. But like, yeah, I it doesn't the home advantage thing. It grinds my gear that people talk about home advantage. <laughs> You're just going to have to fade me out at the end of the section. Dukes, dukes, you had one. ESPN. I do, and I'm not. I'm just a little critical of the way. I'm not even going to get into the whole always finding a way to work Pulisic into it or some form of American soccer or their weird plugs, their weird plugs for MLS. But I will say I have a constructive criticism on this and it's more for not, not fans like us, but somebody who just stumbles upon the games. Everybody here is, I'm assuming you've at least watched one or two games of college basketball during the the March madness. Right. And they always have the, the seed numbers next to the, next to the team names, you know, like this is first place playing 10th place, all that. They should add that for this tournament strictly in America, because as somebody who's watched a lot of games with friends of mine who are not particularly fans, 
the biggest question is, well, are these two teams good? Like, yeah, most of them know France won the last World Cup. England's pretty decent. Germany's always good. Italy's probably good. And after that, they kind of just don't know. And I think, especially as we were talking earlier with some of these defensive, like, rear guard games, it'd be really nice for someone who has never watched the sport, really, or rarely watched the sport, to see that Hungary game and see what their world ranking is compared to Portugal's world ranking. You can see Ronaldo in here, and you, you got this team just frustrating the hell out of Portugal. I think that that would just help bring a lot more American fans into it. I know it seems like a weird Wanda. small thing, but it honestly, I think would make a huge difference because that's the thing I, I explain most to anybody who watches the sport with me. It's never really watched before is how good is this? And I, I apply this to club football as well, because like you got to think about it, like your average American who doesn't watch, they've heard of Manchester United. They've heard of Liverpool. They've heard of Chelsea, Arsenal, you know, the, the big six. But after that, like they don't know, you know what I mean? And yeah. I just think it would, it would definitely help bring the game to more people and give a lot more people the understand like American would be American fans, the understanding of the current situation. I really like that. And as you said, you know, when you see a rear guard actually like Sweden against Spain and you have the rankings next to it, mind you, I'm not, I don't think there's a massive difference between the Spanish and Swedish rankings at the minute, but that would, you know, you, you might be able to, to a new viewer understand why it's happening without just assuming. So I think that's a, I think that's a great idea. I think, and then my final one on an ESPN note is I think the state of some of the Coventry has been really poor. Oh, yeah. I think it's been awful. You, you, you tune into the game and, and your enjoyment of the game depends massively on who you get. And there's, I'm trying to avoid styles because different people enjoy different styles of commentary. I like my commentary to be unobtrusive. I like them to chip in. I like to have a, you know, a main play-by-play commentator who's there commentating, talking, but not too much. And a second commentator who can provide some insight, talk about things. And some people want a bit more excitement. Some people want what we, you know, typically think of more like that Brazilian Mexican style of commentary where it's a bit more, you know, really excited. That doesn't do it for me. But then I look at the two that I'm, I'm going to pull out here: Steve, uh, Steve Candilosi, and and um, uh, the name of the Alejandro Moreno. Alejandro Moreno completely escaped me there. The, the fact of it, like, I don't like their style, personally, fine. Some people, I'm sure, do. They just aren't researched. They just aren't. They, they're coming into a game like someone sat in a pub. And if I want to do that, I'll go to a pub and I'll watch a TV with no sound on. And I'll hear people make informed opinions. You know, and knowing you, what you do, Charlie, is you'd sit there slowly. I'd chime you'd in. Your pint, you'd either chime. Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd boil over. You'd bubble over. You'd, you'd listen. Yeah, to it's about two-thirds of the way through the pint, I'd, I'd bubble over. Yeah. But I, um, you know, I don't, the, the really egregious one is, is yesterday, you know, you've got Italy are playing, they beat Switzerland. Great game. Great fun to watch. Locatelli scores two. They call him an Italian goal machine. A man who's played over 150 international, sorry, not international, 150 senior games at club and international level. And I think those were his 10th and 11th goals. Yeah. Like, uh, get, get, get caught up in the moment. He's got two. Get there. Get really excited. He's just got the brace. Fantastic. But don't talk nonsense. I think it goes hand in hand with what you're saying, dude, is like, I wonder if they feel like they can pull off, they don't need to do that much research because they can just pull a fast one on the audience. Well, I wonder if it's still, I don't know much about Pendulosi as a commentator. I don't know if he is primarily a soccer commentator. My guess would be he commentates other sports because I'm just amazed that in a country, you know, and in a, and in a um, company as well, like ESPN, where the sport is growing, 
where you can really get it going, where so many people are into the sport that that's the best you can do in not doing your research. So, you know, it's something that you can talk about. Maybe the, the style of football doesn't, you know, lend itself to being super, super exciting. But when the commentary for me is actively taking away from the game, that's a massive issue. Yeah, we've all tuned in to watch the football. We're not tuning in to hear, you know, some some hot takes and some inaccurate yeah. stats and, and, and that from the commentators. So And I should not have a saved link in my phone for ESPN commentary schedule just so I can make sure they're not commenting the games I really want to watch. <laughs> which I do. Because I'll send that round to the group because I think everybody needs it in their life to know when to prepare for disappointment. And that would be a big help. Well, one more thing on that on that commentator team for the Italy Italy match. We've said it in our group chat on the side. I'm not sure which one of the commentators it was. Just put an odd, crazy inflection on the on the vowel at the end of every Italian player's name and brought <laughs> brought his thing up up an octave. His voice. It's like Locatelli. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? What is this? It's very weird. Well, on that note, gentlemen, let's hope that England versus Scotland at 3 p.m. Eastern tomorrow has some good commentators and an even better result at the end. Thank you all for listening. Chad, Doog, it's been a pleasure as always. This has been EFC Presents Europod Episode 2, and we'll speak to you all soon. Thanks for listening.